This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, today for our hot question of the day, we're going to talk about what is generally a hot topic anytime it comes up, and that is hospital pay parking. Uh, There is a group that advocates for free parking at hospitals that has released some new numbers on this about the amount of revenue that is generated. We're going to be talking to them a little bit later. But given that the story was in the news, I had an email about it uh, from Mike, and Mike just wanted to make his comment where he talked about how his daughter was admitted to Abbotsford Hospital at eight and a half months. They had a she had some complications in her pregnancy. He said. When I went to visit her and had to pay for the parking, I was a little miffed, he said. But then common sense took hold of me. My daughter and son-in-law did not and still don't have a lot of money. They were getting treatment, meds, room, food, medical care, and the eventual healthy birth of my grandson, he said, for free, free, free. And he said, after that first day, I gladly paid the parking fee. And he said four years ago, he'd also had an aneurysm, 10 days in hospital, top specialist, the whole thing. And he said, what did it cost? About $120, he said, in parking fees. So he's okay. That really made us stop and think this morning. And I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective that we haven't really had it put that way before. So that's what we're asking you. How do you feel about this? He said, so this listener said, my family got treatment, meds, room, food, care, and my grandson's birth for free. What would that have cost in the U.S.? He says, I pay a pittance, meanwhile, for parking. Do you share that sentiment? Is it a small cost to pay for parking? Yes. Or do you think, no, it still should be free? Go to our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at Simi Sarah 980 and cast your vote. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. We are going to be talking about this during the show today. Or give us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Let us know how you feel about this. We will be checking back in with our hot question of the day today. Oh, it's going to be a hot topic, I think. All of a sudden, things got very busy out there, didn't they? So just to recap some of the breaking news that you have been hearing in the last couple of moments, we are getting word that the Canadian federal election that we have been waiting quite a while now for that official call will come tomorrow morning. So the election campaign would officially get underway tomorrow then. So Global News has now confirmed that Prime Minister Trudeau is expected to ask the Governor General to dissolve Parliament and issue the writs that are required to hold those elections in all of Canada's 338 ridings the deadline for that to happen was this coming Sunday. Remember, we were talking to David Aiken about this yesterday. Uh, he, we thought it might come Thursday, but it sounds like now we're getting confirmation it's actually coming tomorrow. So for complete coverage on that and more, stay tuned right here. But get ready, Canadians. Time to start making that decision that you may have been putting off for months now. But we'll have a lot of time to talk about the election, the outcome, uh, once that uh, official decision comes down tomorrow morning, and we'll have complete coverage for you right here. And since we are talking about federal politics, have to talk about this story this morning. It has the kinds of numbers in it that just drives taxpayers crazy, right? The expenses, the money that MPs spend for things other than office expenses. Remember former cabinet minister Bev Oda's $16 orange juice? Remember how that just stuck in people's craw when they heard about that? It is an area that can cause a lot of controversy, which is why these numbers that have been dug up by Global News are so interesting. So what they did was they dug into the data that is made public through members' expenditure reports. Now, this is public information that details how much money each member of parliament claimed in travel expenses over the past four years, not for them, but for their designated traveler, which is usually the MP's spouse or significant other. So that is, you know, MPs, obviously, it's tough to keep families and relationships and stuff together. So understandably, we pay to have, you know, the spouse or significant other to come to Ottawa to make sure that they can spend time together. But when you look at all of the expenses, some of them seem a bit out of whack and compared to other ones. So let's break down some of those numbers for you and talk about what they found. Uh, joining us now is Amanda Connolly, our Global News legislative reporter, who has been looking into this story. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. So first off, explain to us where you dug up this information from. So all of these records are, uh, are are public. We basically built an algorithm that scraped the data from 
um, these public records administered through the House of Commons, and we're able to compile that and go through each individual claim by every one, every one of the 338 MPs to really get a sense of, of what they were claiming in terms of spousal travel expenses here and how that fit into the broader trends that we were seeing across the board for all the rest of the MPs and as well the federal cabinet. Right. So this isn't just the actual MP. This is the money that they're spending, taxpayer money that they're spending to fly their spouses or significant others to them. Yeah, that's correct. So it's a program known as the Designated Traveler System and allows MPs to share their allowances for taxpayer-funded travel with one other individual. So in most cases, this is a husband, a wife, uh, a relative, or things like that. And so the way it works basically is that if, if this individual is, is traveling to be reunited with the MP if, um, or to kind of represent them at events, for example, someone coming from a riding to take part in an event with the MP in Ottawa, then those are the kind of things that qualify for the, the reimbursement of the, the travel costs under this program. And again, what we found was that they, there were $4.5 million total in claims for all MPs over the last four years. And on a year-to-year level, that largely breaks down with what we saw from um, MPs as well during the, the previous government of uh, Conservative, leader, uh, Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And so it's certainly raising a lot of questions going forward about what are individual MPs claiming in cases where their claims are far above what others are are claiming as well? Right. So let's talk about that. Which numbers and which MPs really stuck out for you? So we broke it down kind of based on the, the total amount that was being claimed in the top six. So the MPs that claimed over $100,000 in spousal travel expenses were all Conservative MPs from Western Canada, with the exception of Jody Wilson-Raybould. She's the former Liberal Attorney General. The top claimant overall was Todd Doherty. He's a conservative from northern BC. Um, and again, so he claimed roughly $142,000. Mm-hmm. And Jody Wilson-Raybould claimed about $125,000. Right. I guess but the difference between those two is that um, Todd Doherty, that's, that's a pretty isolated area for him to you know have to get flights in and out of. That's correct. So it's often referred to as kind of one, one of the most remote ridings in the country. It's very isolated. It's up, again, northern BC. And you do typically see higher costs associated with MPs across the right. board, regardless of the party, who come from more remote ridings. Right. So you had Jody Wilson-Raybould coming in. And what was it, $125,000? $125,000. That's correct. And how does that um, compare? After that, again, so... Yes, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, after that, we kind of... Um, you You do continue to see... Uh, conservative MPs from more remote ridings, from more rural ridings throughout BC. Um, and you really kind of get into the, the uh, roughly 11 MPs after that who spent from $50,000 to $100,000 or just underneath that. So you're seeing the bulk of MPs claiming roughly a, below $50,000 for spousal travel with that kind of top tier um, that's really kind of getting up there into the expenses. Right. Okay. So how then does that, how does the Jody Wilson-Raybould cost of $125,000 compare with other Vancouver area MPs, which would be similar in kind of distance? It's quite a significant difference. So what we're seeing from this, again, Wilson-Raybould claimed $125,000. Her closest cabinet colleague who comes from the same geographic area would be Procurement Minister Carla Qualtro. She represents the riding of Delta near uh, the city of Vancouver, Mm -hmm. and she was claiming roughly $46,000. So that's roughly a third of what Jody Wilson-Raybould claimed, and it's not clear at this point what, what that differential was, why there was such a steep difference between the top claim from her cabinet colleague who would have had, you know, similar workloads and schedules and things like that with, um, you know, and uh, with, with Jody Wilson-Raybould's expenses as well. And so that's kind of the question that we're really looking at here going forward. And did Jody Wilson-Raybould have anything to say about the, that difference in her expenses? Not very much, no. So we, re- we reached out to Jody Wilson-Raybould mm-hmm. uh, asking to interview her on camera about this to address a number of questions that we had. She declined to be interviewed but sent back a statement to us saying basically that uh, her and her husband try to maintain a semblance of a work-life balance, that all the rules here were followed and they're very grateful for the program because of the demands that are on MPs and their, their families as they serve um, in elected office. And so we went back to them and asked a few follow-up questions and really haven't gotten much of a, a response in terms of what explains that difference in the expenses that were claimed and we're still we're still pushing for answers on that and so far we're not getting anything. Amanda, this is the kind of stuff that finds that the public are quite sensitive about, aren't they? Just every time that you talk about expenses that seem unusual, people don't like to hear about that, do they? 
I think that that is generally the case. You, you know, we saw it certainly with the Senate expense scandal a couple of years ago. Uh, Canadians, I think, generally like to have a sense that their their elected representatives are being uh, responsible and and mm-hmm. perhaps constrained in their spending of, of public dollars. And these kind of expense issues and questions that come up can certainly uh, raise concerns around wh- whether that is indeed the case. Well, we look forward to hearing more. Amanda, thanks so much for this. Thank you. It's Amanda Connolly, Global News Legislative Reporter in Ottawa, who has been digging into these numbers, publicly available numbers as part of the uh, Members of Parliament's expenditure reports that get filed. And that was the amount of money spent over the last four years. Now, let me run through some of those top numbers for you again. So you have some things to compare it to. This is the money spent by Members of Parliament for their designated travel claimants over the past four years. Number one on the list is Todd Doherty, Conservative MP for Caribou Prince George. Now, come on, that's a riding that's tough to get to and from, right? So you can understand why those expenses would be higher. Uh, He spent approximately $142,000 over that time period. Second is David Uriga from uh, Fort McMurray Cold Lake, also Conservative MP, about $137,000. Then comes Jody Wilson-Raybould, MP for Vancouver Granville, Now she's an independent MP, but of course, for most of this time period we're talking about here, she was a cabinet minister. She spent $125,000, as we heard. So what about the other cabinet ministers? Like, let's compare apples to apples here, right? Other cabinet ministers who are from the Vancouver area, how much money did they spend by comparison? Well, the next highest was Carla Qualtro from Delta with ex- with expenses for designated uh, spouses of $45,000. Joyce Murray of Vancouver Quadra was about $37,000. And I think probably the best comparison because they were both cabinet ministers from day one, uh, right through, right, for most of the mandate there. Harjit Sajjan of Vancouver South, defense minister, claimed $15,000. Now, to take a look at all of the information and to check out more details in the story, uh, go to our website, globalnews.ca. You will see these stories there. And interestingly enough, given the news that we have just heard, this is really the last day to really talk about this kind of issue before we are off and running in the federal election. Uh, so if you want to weigh in with your thoughts as well, you can email me. Does that seem unreasonable to you? Uh, obviously, spouses need to be flown to and from, right? But just trying to get a handle on why these particular expenses seem to be so much higher than other cabinet ministers and MPs from the Vancouver area. Record low numbers. That's what we're hearing about the salmon fishery here on the West Coast. So much so that those who are involved in it, those who rely on that fishery, are really raising the alarm about the dire straits that the industry finds itself in. How bad is it? Well, joining us now is Joy Thorkelson, who's the president of the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union. Joy, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Have you seen anything like this before, kind of the, the state of the industry right now? No, I've been, I've been working in the industry for 45 years, and I've never seen um, a total collapse of almost all stocks uh, coastwide in British Columbia. Did we, do you feel like this was coming? Did we see signs of this leading up to this year? Well, the, it, it's really an ocean uh, problem. We've had um, um, problems that could be related to local issues uh, for many, many years now and exacerbated by what's been going on in the ocean. So, for example, in 2009, we saw uh, the big Fraser failure that led to, not as big as this year, I want to say, but that led to the Cohen inquiry. And then in 2010, we had the largest sockeye run uh, that anybody had seen in, you know, probably 100 years returning to the Fraser. So so it, the the ocean has been very... Um, Unpredictable? Has, 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 unpredictable. It used to be kind of a steady eddy with its productivity, and now it's very unpredictable. And so I guess sooner or later we are going to get to the point where everything on the coast uh, collapsed. Is that... That's a pretty strong word to say collapsed. Do you feel like that's where we are right now? Well, I certainly know that um, that fisheries managers are describing uh, what happened on the NAS and the Skeena and on the Fraser uh, as, as a collapse. Um, other areas of the coast, um, we had enough fish to uh, satisfy spawning requirements in other areas of the coast, and uh, but there was no leftovers for fishing, right? There was nothing to uh, exceed uh, spawning requirements that we and we only fish when it exceeds the spawning requirements. 
when we use the word collapse, it reminds me of, of kind of talking about what we saw on the East Coast with the cod fishery. Do you see similarities with that? Uh not really. Uh, some, there's certainly some similarities. There was ocean productivity problems on the East Coast when that happened. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next year. That's always the problem. Uh, you know, uh, like this year, Bristol Bay had the largest number of sockeye returning ever. And that is, look, I think the, the, the run size was like 42 million fish. Uh, sockeye that returned to Bristol Bay. It was, it was, um, if not the largest, the second largest on record, and that's in the very, very north of Alaska, right around the Aleutian Islands. And so they had record returns there, and they've had very good fishing, um, uh, very good returns uh, to Russia and uh, to China, and and on our side of the ocean, for, except for Bristol Bay, it's been. Um, uh, they're, they're, Alaska did extremely poorly, even though they have lots of hatchery fish. Their hatcheries uh, saw small returns this year. Uh, we saw uh, next to nothing in the British, British Columbia coast, and there's uh, huge issues in Washington and Oregon as well. So then what can we do? Like, Do we just wait and see if this is a pattern, wait until next year, or what, what should happen here? Well, that's what we're worried about because it's the, the, if there's no availability of salmon to catch, then uh, what do we do with our harvesting uh, capacity? And we need to meet with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. We don't have a cli- climate adaptation strategy, and obviously uh, this is a big wake-up call. We need one. We don't know what the fish are going to do next year, if they're going to turn on large numbers. Uh, what we do know is four years from now, we will have be uh, trying to rebuild out of this hole. So four years from now, I, I don't expect uh, fishermen will be fishing either. Or if they will, it will be on very small returns. So we need a strategy on how to handle climate change uh, for our industry. And, uh, and we need that to develop that climate change strategy, I would think, uh, within the next year. It sounds so like I'm you're, hoping you're talking about scaling down the size of the industry here permanently. Well, I don't know if it, I think that's part, that could be part of it. I don't want to presuppose anything. There's also, um, at one time, we used to have an A license that uh, you could uh, move from one fishery to another fishery, so you could participate. If salmon didn't do well, you could participate in crabs or in halibut. Now the department has changed the licensing scheme, so you have to buy into those fisheries, and nobody can afford to do so. So, you know, we might want to look at some licensing changes, FOPO, um, the uh, Fisheries and Oceans Committee of Parliament uh, wrote a report uh, last spring, and DFO is supposed to be implementing um, part of that FOPO report, give us an implementation schedule, and that called for radical changes uh, to licensing on this coast. So, you know, I think that's one of the things where we can talk about the impacts of, lic- uh, of uh, climate change and see if we can use licensing as one of the weapons to um, uh, to help us deal, or one of the tools in our toolbox to help us deal with uh, climate change for the commercial industry. And we also have shore workers and um, and workers who work on packers and people who mend nets. And, and it's not just, um, it's not a small industry. We have lots of spin-off uh, industries that rely on the commercial industry. And, and we need to talk um, about their community impacts if, if we do downsize. We have an election imminent happening here uh, in Canada. Is this the time to talk about this? And is this the way to get or have you been able to get the attention of any major political party? Well, certainly the British Columbia government is is uh, aware and, and they say they've been talking to uh, the Minister of Fisheries and also to the um, uh, to the Minister of Unemployment Insurance. We need disaster relief now because um, pe- people haven't made any earnings since uh, uh, for a year. Uh, last salmon season was the last time salmon fishermen and shore workers made any earnings. So we need we need something to tide them over. Otherwise, fishermen are going to lose their boats. Uh, people are going to move out of the industry, and it's difficult to find experienced crew people now because um, uh, the returns uh, uh, to, for fishing have not been that great. And uh, we need to um, ensure that we have a skilled commercial fleet for the future. There's no doubt that protein is going to be in, an issue all across the world. And, um, and we need to make sure that we manage our fisheries in a manner where we're still going to have an industry mm-hmm. and the people that are left in the industry can make a living. But this year, we need to help people who were just, um, I mean, this is a huge disaster. It's like you know, it's 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 a closure of uh, unprecedented um, 
it's, it's just unprecedented to have the whole coast closed and, and no fishermen able to make a living anywhere. So this year you're saying they need help and then we should wait and see what happens in future years? No, I think this year we need help, and then what we need to do is is have a climate adaptation strategy that is discussed amongst uh, all of the fisheries. Because this year is salmon, maybe maybe next year it'll be halibut or red cod or or pollock or hake. You know, we don't know, so mm-hmm. we need to uh, have a strategy on how to adapt, and so we can quickly adapt, so our fishermen can quickly adapt, so they're not coming back to the public purse year after year after year, but that we have a plan for how we're going to uh, make sure that fishermen are able to make a living, the industry is able to survive, people of Canada are able to, um, um, I mean, you know, you want to find that fish this year, you're yeah. not going to find a salmon that's, uh, that was caught in Canada. So we, we need to be able to, to have a Canadian resource that we can use for food, um, and so we need to ensure that our freshwater habitat is uh, resilient. And I think the provincial and federal governments have uh, many announcements on how much money they're going to spend on habitat uh, restoration. And that's good. But the big uh, anomaly, of course, the big unknown is the is the um, what's going on out in the ocean. So we can have um, we can look after our freshwater habitat and still have a disaster for commercial fishing in the marine areas. Joy, thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you. That's Joy Thorkelson, president of the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union, sounding the alarm about what has happened to the salmon industry this year. They said there's so much uncertainty. They don't know. Is next year going to bounce back? Or they just do they need to start thinking about seriously scaling down the size of this? Well, BC's Finance Minister Carol James has just announced the quarterly forecast for BC's finances. And that's why we thought we would catch up with Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. I think we've literally caught him in the hallways of the legislature to tell us more about this. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi, I just ducked out of the news conference, which is still ongoing with Finance Minister Carol James. Okay, can you give us an update? What are we hearing? How is BC looking? Things are looking fairly stable, actually. The surplus is down modestly from what was projected in the spring uh, to a little under $200 million, but it's still overall pretty good news. The one big decline is in um, property transfer tax revenues, of course, with a slump in the housing market. But employment levels projected to be strong and stable. The one area of concern is economic growth is slowing down in the province Mm -hmm. from 2.4% to 1.7%. But we're just uh, talking to finance officials. We're trying to figure out how can that big drop, which is about a third, not translate into sort of some economic woes. And they said basically the economy is structured to be able to absorb something like that. We're not as reliant on the real estate sector as we used to be. And even though the forest sector is certainly struggling, um, retail sales, people spending money still remains fairly robust. All right, and talking about the uh, like property transfer taxes, the housing starts, how does that picture look? Because that used to drive a lot of the finances. It did. It was a, literally a billion-dollar uh, industry. So uh, property transfer tax revenues are down almost a half billion dollars over what was projected. But corporate income tax revenues sort of offset that drop because they're up as well. But it's interesting to me, the one thing I, uh, is, as a homeowner, you're always wondering what your, your resale value is, is such. So it's expected to take a big drop this year in terms of resale value. But it, it, after next year, it's expected to go up. Your, the price of your home expected to increase in value about 7% every year going forward. So that's encouraging for existing homeowners. But again, it doesn't seem to answer the, the puzzle of how to get more people into the housing market when you've already got expensive homes already. And even though there, there's a decline in their, in their resale value, they're expected to go up again. So that big drop we've seen last year and this year yeah. may actually disappear uh, over the next few years as housing prices actually go up, not down. And what about housing starts? I understand that those numbers look like they were set to increase as well. Yeah, they're up uh, uh, as well, about 8,000 housing starts. So it's about 40,000 a year going forward, which again is encouraging. But Carol James points out, be careful when you look at uh, the housing market because there are all sorts of housing markets in BC. Metro Vancouver and housing starts there are completely different than, say, Kamloops or, or Prince George or even the capital region. But it's encouraging that the number of housing starts is increasing. It's not enough necessarily to um, eliminate the rental crisis or even 
the, the chances of first-time home buyers to get into the market. This seems to be a long-term uh, solution if it is a solution, but mm -hmm. certainly overall, the update today, nothing really to worry about in BC's economy, even though the economic growth is expected to go down. But Carol James points out for all the positive numbers in this report today, we're always at the mercy of the world economy. And if the world economy were to suddenly slide and go into recession, there's little chance for BC to, uh, to escape itself from that. All right, we'll let you get back in there, Keith. Thank you very much for the update. All right, take care, Simi. All right, thank you. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. He literally stepped out of the news conference to give us that very quick update. The quarterly forecast is being released by Finance Minister Carol James right now, and she's just answering some questions about it. Let me just run through some of the numbers that uh, we have here. So the projected surplus for the year is down. It was originally thought to be $274 million. That's the surplus for the year. They are now predicting that to be $179, 179 million dollars, I should say. The province, when it comes to wildfires, has spent about $121 million on fighting wildfires so far this year. Now, of course, you may remember that is a lot less than we have spent in recent years. It is still over budget. Historically, I found that every government does that, right? They just, you, you never know what you're going to spend on wildfires, but it almost always goes over budget. In this case, it is over budget, but nowhere near what we have spent in recent years. Also, uh, Carol James, uh, you know, trying to tout the best aspects, uh, putting the best positive face forward on this as well, uh, points to BC being the only province in Canada with a AAA uh, credit rating. Um, of course, at the same time, when they were in opposition, they were always saying, oh, that doesn't mean anything, that AAA credit rating. But they love to tout that once they're in power. Every, I think, government does that, every finance minister. What about home sales? Keith touched on that as well. Home sales are down 16% on a year-to-date basis. However, they're saying housing starts are up, according to the province's numbers, 48,739 housing starts. Uh, but when you take a look at that property transfer tax, and as Keith pointed out, the property transfer tax revenues, uh, uh, really three, even three or four years ago, was a huge driver, engine driver of the province's finances uh, down. 385 million. That is a huge shift, though, uh, in terms of they're just not as reliant on it. That is something that the NDP government moved away from. We saw that much more, though, uh, definitely in the BC Liberal years where they were raking in the bucks when it came to property uh, transfer tax revenues. We were talking earlier about the blow to the salmon industry here on the West Coast and how, uh, you know, fishermen are now looking for some help. They want a disaster aid package, some some kind of help to get through the next year, maybe two, or maybe this is the permanent status of the industry. Well, we're also talking about an industry in trouble now, except this time it is the forest industry. Uh, another blow that we've heard about, a Surrey-based company, Teal Jones Group, has announced an immediate halt to all of its coastal logging operations. Let's get more details on this now from Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter who has been covering this story. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. You're right. You're absolutely right. Not only are fisher people in the province maybe going to be looking to the provincial federal politicians for help, but now as we've been hearing for weeks, not, not only weeks, but months too, uh, that the logging industry, the forest industry is in big trouble in this province. And today, another company, Teal Jones, which is based in Surrey, has announced it too, is shutting down its remaining coastal logging operations. Now, in May this year, we had some indication that there was trouble on the horizon. Uh, they announced then, back in May, that they were scaling back their logging operations on Vancouver Island, curtailing uh, the harvest of second-growth forests, but maintaining uh, their cut of available old-growth blocks in its tree farm licenses on the island. But today, they are announcing they are done, and they say that it is because of the weak lumber markets and the high cost of fiber. Uh, they've put out a statement saying this will result in a substantial loss loss of employment at their harvesting operations in the Fraser Valley and on Vancouver Island. In terms of numbers, they haven't released that number. Uh, the company also has a shake and shingle operation in Surrey near the Fraser River and 176th Street, Simi. Mm -hmm. I spoke to the local NDP MLA, Gary Begg. He says some good news, at least, for now anyways, he says. It appears that the workers at that operation, their jobs are safe. Uh, but I had an interesting conversation 
conversation with him not long ago, and here's more of what he says about our overall BC lumber industry and whether any help is coming from the BC government. Here's more of what he has to say. Well, I think uh, we've known for some time that the uh, lumber market uh, all across the world, including, of course, North America, has been uh, significantly weak uh, over a long period of time. Uh, we've been working in this case with the Teal Jones Group. Uh, I've been working with Teal Jones Group since I was elected, and they're very important uh, employers in our constituency. At this point, there doesn't appear to be an impact on the operation here, but um, dependent upon market in the future, it certainly may be affected. Um, however, um, there is corrective action, hopefully, that can be taken to deal with the issues that are forcing them to contemplate at least a reduction in their workforce here. Is there anything the provincial government can do uh, to help out these companies? I mean, a lot of people are being impacted because of these decisions. Well, again, fortunately, I don't think the operation uh, in Surrey will be affected at uh, this point, and certainly there are ongoing processes in place uh, where we work with the uh, logging and um, forestry industry uh, to keep uh, mills up and running where it's practicable. And this Teal Jones operation in Surrey is, uh, uh, has been a mainstay of the economy, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll all get together and work to ensure that it continues to be. Province-wide, though, Gary, is there anything the provincial government can do to step in and help out these companies, and particularly the employees who are losing their jobs? Well, the uh, the economics of the forestry industry are dependent upon world markets. We are an exporting nation, and much of uh, uh, what we uh, supply is exported. And while the North American economy uh, is weak, uh, so too is the uh, global um, uh, lumber industry demand and um, these things tend to work in cycles and hopefully the economy will recover sufficiently that it makes uh, this operation at least in a position to be able to compete. All right, that is Janet Brown speaking with NDP MLA in Surrey, Gary Begg. I would imagine, Janet, that this is pretty, it's nervous for the NDP government too because they're getting a lot of criticism for not doing enough for the forestry industry. They certainly are, but they are pushing back the MLA saying we are doing things. We are meeting with the companies trying to, you know, get something going. But as Gary says, I mean, it's, it's out of their hands in many ways. It, you know, it, this is, this is considered a crisis and, and it's because of, um, the shrinking timber supplies mm-hmm. and then also compounded semi by the poor markets that we've seen these closures and curtailments. And in fact, it's affected 20 mills over the last couple of months. And, and, and the losses in terms of jobs is really adding up, up hundreds and hundreds of jobs so far. And, and Gary also makes another good point. These things do work in cycles. I mean, we have seen the lumber industry rise and fall yeah, over, over have. the decades, as well as the salmon industry that you were talking about earlier today, Simi. But, uh, yeah, I mean, workers and companies are looking to the government for help. Um, they can't, they can't do it alone. And I think everybody has to come together uh, around the table and talk about it. How can we see these companies through? Because at the end of the day, these are major employers in our province and it's going to affect the bottom line and our economy. So something has to be done here for sure. Right. You said that the company put out a press release where they said this would result in a substantial loss of employment. Do we know how many people that might be? I, I hate to say it, uh, but I have heard, and it's not confirmed with the company yet, but I'm hearing 300 jobs for Ooh. Teal Jones alone. So that's a lot, yeah. a lot, Simi. And if you're one of these employers and employees and, and you're looking at a job loss at this time of the year, heading towards Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, you've got a mortgage, you've got payments, you have families, uh, yeah, tough times, it scary is. times for a lot of people in our province right now. All right, Janet, thank you very much for that. You're welcome, Simi. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, talking about a Surrey logging-based company that is uh, falling on tough times. Till Jones saying that they are halting all logging in their Fraser Valley and Vancouver Island operations. They believe this will result in a substantial loss of employment. This is just the latest forestry company in BC to say that they are kind of shutting up shop. 
Well, today we are talking about and been getting lots of reaction on the topic of hospital parking. Now, we've heard about this controversy for years now because people just don't feel like it's fair. It feels like they're being hit when they're already down. You're either in the hospital or you're visiting a loved one in the hospital and you have to worry about getting a parking ticket. It just seems like too much, right? Just too much piling grief upon grief in some cases. Well, there has been a BC man who's been spearheading a campaign against pay parking at hospitals around the province. And he's put together some numbers and he says those numbers show that we're paying more than ever. We wanted to talk more about this and find out what kind of numbers they have. So John Buss is with us now, the lead volunteer for the hospitalpayparking.ca advocacy group. John, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Listen, how did you get started in this? Well, I wanted to uh, do something good for the community. I wanted to uh, get involved with an issue I thought um, could use some of my talents uh, in business and also uh, do some good uh, So, as a volunteer. You know, there's a lot of folks that have been complaining about this for a long time. It's been in the media for, I guess, forever. Oh, yeah, years. Uh, across the country. And it just, no one was really taking ownership of the problem. And uh, I realized there was an opportunity to see if I could uh, do something to help. Now, you dug up some numbers. How did you dig those numbers up? Where did you get this information from? They're posted on the uh, the websites for all the health authorities. Uh, they're mandated to post their financials every year. And it's a fiscal year, so we're dealing March 31st. And they usually come out about this time. And mm-hmm. I wanted to see how things had changed since the last fiscal year. And uh, concerned that these revenues from pay parking are, are only going up. They should be going away. Oh, okay, yeah, there just seems to be from the numbers you've collected anyway that shows that they're just making more money than they ever have been. Yeah, unfortunately, there was a we quietly put together a contract uh, that was um, signed in January of this year, and I released it uh, through the, the website hospitalpayparking.ca. And it got fair attention because it has some significant changes to how British Columbians uh, will pay for parking at public hospitals. Uh, the control entrances, we've all seen the gates, people in there taking money. Uh, that's going away. That's mandated in the contract to, to go away. And what's happening, these machines where you guess your time and prepay, oh, and yeah. you probably have other things on your mind, I would imagine. Uh, most people would think it's reasonable when you go to a hospital. And uh, that just uh, brings in more violation revenue, and all of that goes uh, to uh, the uh, the contractor uh, mainland, it's uh, it's in park and on the island. Robbins Parking, I should say, Robbins Parking do split some of it with Island Health. Right. So that's the problem I think people have is like, where is this money going? So they collect all this revenue, but who's benefiting the most from that revenue? Then, John. Well, clearly, it's not patients and their supporters. I mean, the whole idea is about making profit. It's not about healthcare. That's the problem. That's the fundamental problem with pay park at hospitals. People are not of sound mind often when they go to a hospital. And when you go to a hospital and you pay, uh, rather you, you park in the parking lots, you're agreeing to a contract. And that fine print is located on the signage that the contractor will place around the parking lot telling you, by parking here, you're giving up this right and this right. We have this right and this right. So it makes it difficult to really argue with that at a time in need when, or when you're going to visit someone. Uh, it's kind of like those warnings on medications, you know, don't operate heavy machinery, yeah. uh, don't go to a legal contract. You are entering into a legal contract when you park your car at a hospital. Uh, and that's got to go. We, yeah. we, can, we, can, we can do better. We can use technology. Uh, there's ways that can be done, and it's being done in other hospitals right. around the world that used to have... Um, pay parking. Yeah, let's talk about that, the better ways to do this, because I was thinking about the technology aspect, because it seems like people get a ticket by default, right? They can't update or they need more time, and it's so difficult for them to do that. Meanwhile, you know, you can get a City of Vancouver app, and it's a great app, where you can do it all on your phone, and it doesn't matter where you are, you can essentially plug your meter. Why don't they have better technology? Well, I think uh, Impark, for example, I think they do have an app, and and, and that's great, uh, but it's not great given the context. Who wants to check right. their phone when they're in receiving care in a True. hospital? You're interacting with, with doctors, nurses, professionals that are there to do a really important job. This is something that should not be on the minds of people in a hospital, period. So then how do we do it better? Like what kind of technology do you think would make this better? Yeah, we've got some suggestions on our website. It's local technology. Uh, companies right here in the Vancouver area operate in um, parking lot data. Um, they they have all sorts of uh, ways of tracking who's in the lot. Uh, should they be there? It's like a triaging of vehicles. Um, there's a registration process, obviously, for those that go to the hospital. Uh, and for those that are patients, this could easily be automated. It's done so. City of Surrey, City Hall, for example, great example there of how to do it properly. Um, there's all sorts of ways that are low cost 
very, very effective and are in use. This is this is tried technology. It's local technology. It's just a matter of cutting the addiction yeah. to the easy revenue. And until that happens, we're going to see more of this. Let's talk about the easy revenue then. Uh, g- tell us about the amount of money. Let's start with Fraser Health because that's a big one. Mm. How much yeah. money does Fraser Health rake in from pay parking? Uh, they rake in... Well, they raked in $15.4 million in fiscal 2019. That oh. was a half million up from a year earlier. More, they made more money year over year, half a million dollars more. Half a million bucks, yep. One year, one fiscal year. Okay, that's a lot of money. And the reason why I started with Fraser Health here, John, is because next up we're talking about uh, Coastal Health, which is like Vancouver Coastal Health, which you yeah. think would be more money because it's in Vancouver, parking is expensive. But how much yeah. money do they make off parking? Well, they made uh, $5.7 million in the last year, and it's significantly less for, for the others compared to Fraser. I think Fraser Health uh, has a few more facilities. Um, they, they also have, um, I think, a different uh, rate scheme going. But uh, to account for the difference, um, it would require some information that's not made public. Right, because I'm curious about that, is how you could have these two big health authorities, Vancouver you yeah. know, versus Fraser Health, and such a huge, almost a $10 million discrepancy in parking revenue. Yeah, it's a great question. And unfortunately, we're only able to access information that's made public, and we're dealing with a public body, so and what, what they make public, we've got to go on. Let's talk about then Island Health, where they are also making big bucks off parking. Yeah, they've brought in $8.15 million, and that was up about a quarter million from the previous year. Um, still double the rate of inflation, uh, still not acceptable, but, uh, um, you know, that wasn't a, a huge increase. I, I think the, the next two we're going to get to is really where the eyebrows are being raised. It's an interior. Yeah. Let's talk Northern. about interior and Northern health then. Tell me about those. Yeah, well, we saw a 13% increase in parking, pay parking revenues at interior health. And uh, I, there was a quote from the CEO, uh, interior health uh, last year in December, saying that uh, pay parking, it's always on our radar. We're very uh, cognizant of that uh, revenue method. And uh, yeah, she wasn't kidding around. Um, they, they they certainly have uh, done well no <laughs> in exploiting patients and, and their supporters. But, you know, the big one, which is a little unusual, I think, is Northern Health, uh, where that's among the most rural parts of the province. Uh, 45% increase in one year. I can't explain it. <laughs> I, I, so they went from seven hundred and thirteen thousand yeah. dollars a year in twenty eighteen to collecting more than a million dollars in twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I, I can't explain that. Um, like why uh, or how facility. how that increased? Like, are they charging more? Or what's going on? Why are we having pay parking in, in areas that are yeah. very rural? I mean, it's just a proof that this is about the money. It's not a health. Um, oriented uh, system. It, it's a profit-oriented system. And this has no place in publicized public medicine. It's socialized medicine. We spread all the costs to everyone, to all taxpayers. Yeah. This is a user fee. Is there a way, do you think, John, to adjust the system? Uh, so, you know, people are saying that if under certain circumstances you shouldn't pay. Maybe if you're just visiting somebody, you could pay. Like, is there a way to make the system that nuanced? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think it's going to come down to technology. And there's lots of really smart people that uh, work in the administration, in the health authorities, that, that have the resources, uh, people, and, and technology to figure this out. I mean, should we have some payment methods? Maybe look at the city of Burnaby, city of Surrey. Those two cities went to uh, two-hour free. So you, you don't pay for the first two hours. And that's helped for a lot of people, particularly visitors. Um, and visitation is really good, by the way. There's a lot of science that stipulates or that, that proves that uh, having visitors in a hospital is, is really good for health outcomes. Right. So we need the visitors, um, but we, we also then can charge after that. If you want to stay a little extra, um, then you'll pay. And it should be a, a fair fee. Uh, anyone that's receiving care, I mean, we just cannot, I don't think it's comfortable to, to charge people that are receiving care in a hospital. Right. And if there's an issue with the vehicle being left for weeks and weeks because it was a serious issue, we can work with the family, we can work with the the supporters to, to deal with that rather than towing it uh, and, right. and ticketing it. That, that's not necessary. You make a good point, though, because other people have pointed out, like, if we make the parking free, uh, you're just going to get people who, like, work at the hospitals and clogging up all the parking. Yeah, well, we, we always said we cannot be a free-for-all. That just will not work. We have to discriminate, uh, and we can discriminate at a hospital because it, it, it's fair. Staff, patients, and those who support patients. Nobody else. It's that simple. Right. Easy. And two hours free kind of helps with that, right? Because then if you're staff, you're not going to park there. 
Yeah, well, staff parking has been right. We never advocated for staff parking. That is an employer-employee relationship issue. We have stayed clear from that. But obviously, there must be proper, safe facilities for staff. It's a no-brainer. We're advocating for patients and their supporters. And the two-hour parking in Surrey, it's not a lot of stalls. It's about 103, I think. But it's a big help. And when we sat down with Mayor Burnaby, um, you know, him and his council were very receptive to the idea, and they passed it a few months ago. And, and I think it'll help people that visit Burnaby General on Kincaid Street that has now uh, had the meters removed, and it's two-hour free for, for visitors to the hospital. That helps. It also brings up the inventory numbers, too, for the available spots right. for people at a hospital without, without charge. But, That's another big uh, key uh, issue there. Yeah, we're, we're, we're making progress. All right. Well, John, thanks so much for talking to us about it. My pleasure. Appreciate that. That's John Bus, lead volunteer for the hospitalpayparking.ca advocacy group. What is going on in Port Moody? Now, Rob Vagramov was elected not even a year ago as mayor in that community. And then turns out he was facing a charge of sexual assault stemming from an incident back in 2015. So as a result of that, he temporarily stepped aside to deal with the legal issues and a schedule was worked out, whereas each councillor would take turns being the acting mayor. But even though those legal issues have not yet been resolved, he decided yesterday, rather abruptly, to just go back to the job. But there's still lots of questions about this story, about what has been going on here. Some Port Moody councillors not happy about this at all. Uh, joining us now to talk more about this is Global News reporter Sarah McDonald, who has been covering the story. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Now, that press conference yesterday was um, kind of bizarre, right? Because why is he deciding now to come back to work? Well, that was the big question yesterday. It was one that we didn't really get a full answer to because Vagramov told us he has a lot to say. He says, I have a lot of thoughts on this that I want to tell you guys, but unfortunately I can't talk to any legal aspect of this case and not even any vaguely legal questions in terms of he's on the docket to appear uh, in court in Port Coquitlam on Thursday morning. He wouldn't even tell us if he would be uh, showing up for that court appearance on Thursday. I think we have a clip pulled um, of just his response so our listeners can get a better idea of sort of the response we got from Rob Begramoff yesterday at this rather abruptly called press conference in which he didn't tell us much, but he did tell us he was returning to office effective immediately yesterday. Here it is. You can't tell us if you'll be in court on September 12th. You can't tell Again, us. Again, any legal stuff, like I just said, um, I, don't, I really don't want to have to keep repeating that part. But if anybody has any questions about the last few Are you few confident months, you can still lead the city of Port Moody? Do you have the trust of your city councillors after what's happened? Of course, happened no, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be getting back. Um, I think we have some really important work uh, to get uh, done. I am extremely regretful at the fact that there is lost time. Um, and I just want to get, get, a, get a head start on, on getting those issues uh, figured out. All right, Sarah, he might be excited about coming back, but how are other Port Moody councillors feeling about this? Right. So that was yesterday afternoon. Um, yesterday evening, none of the councillors responded to our request for comment, which is somewhat telling. Um, we did hear back from one city councillor uh, this morning who, in no uncertain terms, is obviously not happy with Vagramov's return to office. That's Megan Lottie. And the interesting part here uh, is Vagramov yesterday in his announcement said he's returning to all of his mayoral duties effective yesterday, except for one, and that is at the city of Port Moody's police board, because that's essentially a conflict of interest uh, while he's fighting a criminal charge to be sitting on the police board. So he told us uh, Megan Lottie, who had been sitting on the police board in his absence, had agreed to stay on uh, in that role as Vagramov returned to his duties. But I just got this email from Megan Lottie this morning, and I'll just read it to yeah. our listeners, a portion of it at least. Uh, she tells me she's actually out of town. She says, I must tell you, though, that I've informed Mr. Vagramov that I will not agree to sit as chair of the police board, as I believe this would be inappropriate and is not compliant with the Police Act. I believe that until and unless Vagramov is able to fulfill the duties and responsibilities that he took an oath to perform, he has no business being at City Hall. This is not about politics. This is about standing up in solidarity with women across the country. And it's about the fact that he cannot perform his duties while under this cloud. And that in no uncertain terms uh, is Megan Lottie's response to Vagramov yeah. returning to office rather abruptly. I wrote to her afterwards for clarification saying, was Vagramov 
being untruthful yesterday when he told us that you would actually agree to sit on the police board. And she said, no, he was actually being truthful. He called her yesterday, apparently, while she was on vacation in Portugal. And she said she was actually taken aback by that phone call. And she initially uh, reluctantly agreed, in her words, um, to continue in her role as chair of the board once Begramoff returned. But she has since reconsidered, she says, and she has since changed her mind. And she has now notified Begramov of that change of heart. So we don't know exactly uh, hmm. where we go from here in terms of the police board. But obviously, at least one city councillor uh, yeah. vocally unhappy with his return to office. Right. So have we heard anything from any other councillors at this point? Well, and radio silence from the others, which, hmm. I mean, you can interpret that in many other ways. Of course, now Begramov is the sitting mayor of Port Moody again. So um, perhaps their silence is understandable, but um, no statements of support um, right. for his return to office as well. Now, so. Sarah, did he also allude to the fact that he thought that the legal case against him was close to resolution yesterday? He did several times, but yet he wouldn't elaborate on that. He referred us to his lawyer who hasn't returned our calls at this point, almost uh, 24 hours after we put in those calls to his office. Um, but he told us, in his words, what he thought was a scary indictment, which was obviously one charge of sexual assault, which he is still facing, according to the BC Prosecution Service, um, who to us yesterday were rather taken aback by this announcement as well. They wrote to us saying, as far as we know, nothing has changed in terms of this case hmm. uh, and this one count of sex assault that he is facing. But they did write to us after that press conference to confirm uh, what Vegermoff told us, which is that this charge against him, a single charge of sex assault, is now being pursued by Crown Counsel as a summary offense. Uh, and that is less severe than a indictment offense for sexual assault, but it is still an offense. Uh, there's, yeah. He's still facing a charge of sexual assault, which I think is very important to make clear here. But I mean, just going from his statement yesterday and before we started asking him questions, um, you'd almost think this case has been resolved, which is not the case. He is expected to be in court on Thursday. He is still facing a charge of sexual assault um, on a summary offense, which he tells us his legal counsel is now working towards some sort of resolution with Crown mm. Counsel to avoid a trial in this case altogether. So we will wait for details on that and we will likely get those on Thursday. But a summary right. offense uh, is still a criminal offense if there is a conviction and it could carry it, uh, for a crime of this nature and a conviction for a crime of this nature could still carry up to 18 months right. in jail. All eyes on Thursday then. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. That's right. Thank you, Simi, for having me. That is Sarah McDonald, our global news reporter covering this story. I guess when I hear all these details, I wonder why didn't he just wait until Thursday, until the case was resolved or taken care of? If that's what he says is going to happen on Thursday, then why not just wait? It would have made all the explanations so much easier than deciding to come back yesterday and still leaving all these unanswered questions. And uh, Sarah's absolutely right. They got a lot of silence, radio silence there from the other Port Moody counselors about how they're feeling about this. What this has also demonstrated, I think, to many municipalities is the lack of power that you have to do anything. And I remember talking to Megan Lottie about this when she was the acting mayor of Port Moody, is that there is no mechanism to force a, a counselor or a mayor to step aside if there is a legal problem or anything like that. You actually have to get them to do it on their own accord. There is no actual legal mechanism to make that happen. So we will clear clearly, very carefully be watching uh, what happens on Thursday as well. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.